Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Have you ever heard of critical race theory or the debate about it? I haven't, unfortunately. And have you heard about Derek Bell? No, I haven't. But definitely, if I could write down his name, I'll Google him. Yes, I think critical thinking is very important. Critical thinking or critical race theory? Critical race theory. Oh, it's critical race theory. Critical race theory? Have you ever heard of that? No, what happened? Have you heard of critical race theory? Who? Critical race theory. Have you ever heard of that term before? What is it? What is it? I don't know. Like, I feel so silly because I I know there was a point where I knew what it was. Um, Isn't it just kind of examining your actions or kind of like what you see through like a race conscious lens? Maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure how I would like define it. Like, I feel like I kind of know what it is, but I really don't know how to like put it into words properly. Yeah. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. And a special welcome to those joining us for the first time this week from KSJD in the Four Corners region of Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah. Glad to have you in the conversation. So it's totally understandable if you cannot define critical race theory. Honestly, if you've not been to law school or had some form of graduate education in the humanities, it's just really unlikely you would have even heard the phrase before it became the latest jumble of words loaded into the pull-string doll of right-wing media. Another incantation to fear for those who feel threatened by a changing America. Phrases like defund the police or Antifa are, for you old-timers out there, remember Benghazi, 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 or even death panels, remember that one from the early Obamacare debate? Anyway, the thing is that this one is particularly sad to me because critical race theory is actually rooted in a really thought-provoking set of ideas, and it has a fascinating backstory. So we're going to learn that story this week. We're not going to take calls, but we are taking voicemails. You can always talk to us by going to notesfromamerica.org, look for the record button, and chime in. Just be sure to include at least your first name and where you're calling from. Okay, so our guide through the history of critical race theory is New Yorker writer and dean of the Columbia University School of Journalism, Jelani Cobb. He wrote about this history in an essay for the magazine a couple years ago. Hey, Jelani, thanks for coming on. Thank you. So I learned a new phrase that I do love reading your piece. You you talked to the legendary, to my mind, legendary legal scholar and nation columnist Patricia Williams, uh, who said, what's been done to critical race theory is, quote, definitional theft. And and, and I love that phrasing. Explain what she meant by it. She, She meant that they had taken a term that existed, that had a definition, and completely usurped it and you know, stolen effectively the name critical race theory and applied it to a completely different set of ideas that have nothing to do with what the originators and, and the scholars who founded this field were really thinking about. And you, you quote the, you know, the right-wing activist Christopher Rufo, who pretty clearly spells out the plan of attack for that definitional theft on what he calls the brand of critical race theory. Who is this guy, and why is what he said important to understand before we even get into this conversation? So he's really the person who's at the center of the uproar about critical race theory. He's a, a right-wing political operative. And he, you know, said literally that he wanted to uh, to take the brand and quote unquote freeze it uh, as an association with a whole array of negative things in people's minds. And you know, this was done really as a counteroffensive after you know millions of people saw that video of George Floyd's death mm-hmm. and really were driven to you know, literature, to you know, research, to history, to try to understand how this could come about. You know, what society are we living in? And that really unsettled, I think, uh, people who were in you know, the right-wing part of the spe- political spectrum. 
Uh, and this was an attempt to discredit critical race theory, but really a more substantial attempt to discredit a whole body of uh, anti-racist scholarship that people had turned to after George Floyd's death. I think it's so interesting that he even used the word brand, you know? Right. <laughs> this is a set of ideas, and he called it a brand. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the more grotesque parts of modern life, that everything is a brand. You know, I'm I'm old enough to remember when people were trying to establish a good reputation, uh, and now people want to establish a brand. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's kind of imported that, you know, the language of marketing uh, into our daily lives, and in this case, into our intellectual lives and into social policy and activism. Uh, and so critical race theory is not a brand. <laughs> it's a movement with distinct uh, intellectual roots, with uh, parameters and specific questions about the legacy of civil rights, uh, discrimination, and anti-discrimination law, and the ways in which uh, racial hierarchies have been able to reassert themselves despite the best intentions and successive waves of attempts to reform. Of course, the irony of all this is that both critical race theory specifically and the man whose work it grew out of, this was all a critique of mid-century liberalism and really of the civil right. rights movement itself, <laughs> you know? And, and I'll be honest, Johnny, I didn't fully appreciate that before reading your piece. And I actually suspect... There are a lot of people on all sides of the political spectrum out here, you know, talking about this idea who don't actually know what it is and where it came from. So that thus, that's why we wanted to sit down with you. Uh, you tell the life story of Derek Bell. Um, introduce him in a few sentences for those who haven't spent their lives in the halls of academia. Who was Derek Bell? Uh, it's really hard to introduce Derek Bell in a few <laughs> sentences, but I'll do my best. Uh, so Derek Bell was a activist for the first part of his life. He was a legal activist who uh, risked his life to file and fight desegregation suits in Mississippi between 1960 and 1966 when he worked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. The second part of his career was in academia as a law professor, where he began pioneering work that essentially critiqued what he had done as an activist lawyer. And that sent him down the route of questioning the underpinnings of the legal and, to a certain extent, the social strategies of the civil rights movement and the ways in which liberalism had failed to uproot racism in American society. I think you did it well. So let, let's walk through the, and unpack all of that. His first job was out of law school at the Department of Justice. This is 1957, I believe. But he's a registered member of the NAACP, and the DOJ wants him to quit that group. And instead, he resigns. Yeah, and which becomes a theme in his life. You know, Derrick Bell was you know, the first black attorney in the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. And you know, being hired there in 1957 was no small deal. You know, this was a very prestigious and significant position that he had attained, but he was a member of the NAACP, and when they told him that he would have to quit, he just decided that he would quit, but he wasn't going to quit what they thought. <laughs> he wasn't going to quit the organization. He was going to quit the DOJ. And, you know, this came up again and again in his career. You know, subsequently, he quit as the dean of the University of Oregon the law school uh, because they refused to extend a job offer to an Asian female candidate who was the third person on a list after two prior candidates, both white men, had declined the position. And it's, I mean, it suggests, and you talk to people who, who knew him who suggest this, that it, a certain personality, you know. Certainly, uh, right. You know, talk about that. Like, more, it's more than just his ideology. It sounds like he was, he was a person who um, was a bit of an absolutist, I guess. Yeah, he was, I think he was an absolutist about matters of principle. And in the third instance, where he quit uh, yet another job, an even more, possibly more prestigious uh, job than the DOJ, uh, was when he quit in 1990 Harvard Law School over its failure to hire and tenure a black woman uh, faculty member or any women of color. And so he said at the time, he gave a speech uh, where he said that he could not afford to, to walk away from that job, but he also felt that he could not, in good conscience, tell his students to live out their principles if he failed to do the same. 
Uh, and you just find that as a theme in his life. And I also think, I also think that the one last thing I'll say is that one of the things that stands out to me about him and having learned more about him in the process of writing this was that he really was a person who was driven by integrity and driven by his sense of principle. Uh, and, you know, he countenanced the beliefs and arguments of people who thought differently than he did uh, and encouraged people to express themselves. Mm. And, you know, he was by no means a zealot or an ideologue in any kind of way, but he was trying to follow, I think, the most honest intellectual path that he was capable of. Well, so after he quits the Department of Justice in 1957, he lands a job at the NAACP instead. And this is a really interesting moment in the history of civil rights, right? I mean, 1957. So this is right after the end of the Montgomery bus boycott. um, And the NAACP um, has litigated and won in the Supreme Court. uh, Mm -hmm. And he steps into that. Um, In some ways, it's kind of – this is – perhaps maybe the most idealistic time for the movement, no? I mean, help situate us in time for the civil rights movement that he steps into at that time. It's really a time of harvest, you know, for the, especially the legal part of the movement. Uh, Because, you know, beginning in the 1930s, when Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall were uh, filing these cases, you know, across the country and kind of laying the groundwork for what happened in the 1950s, they it was kind of lonely work swimming against the tides, you know, trying to get these desegregation suits past these judges. And by the 1950s, they reach a point where all of a sudden they have the the wind at their back. You know, to mix my metaphor here, uh, you know, they are really moving. You know, there's the obviously Brown versus Board of Education, uh, Montgomery bus boycott lawsuit, and then they begin essentially an offensive across the South, filing thousands of desegregation suits, many of which were overseen uh, by Derrick Bell. And so he comes into, and by the way, he's very much influenced by Thurgood Marshall. You know, he, as a young uh, lieutenant in the Air Force, he sees the Brown versus Board of Education decision uh, and is immensely inspired by it. That's part of the reason that he goes to law school. And so when you look at the moment that he arrives at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, is one of the most exciting and fertile moments, you know, in in that movement's history. Coming up, the unexpected lessons that Derek Bell takes from his time at the center of the civil rights movement and how he arrives at a searing critique of liberalism. Stay with us. Hi, my name's Regina, and I'm a producer with the show. You may remember that last year, we started the Notes from America Summer Playlist. We collected submissions from you and curated a playlist that everyone could enjoy. Well, summer is here again, and I'm happy to announce we're launching our second summer playlist. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with the guys from a band called Wake Island. They talked about how music has become such a powerful outlet for identity, filling a need as they search for their place in the Arab American diaspora. So now it's your turn. What's a song that represents your personal diaspora story? Here's how to send us your response. Go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the record button to leave us a message. Start with your name and where you're recording from. Then tell us the name of that song, the artist, and a short story that goes along with it. Feel free to include a little bit about your background as well. Make it your own. And please make sure that your recording is at least a minute long. We'll gather all the songs and your stories in Spotify playlists that will drop regularly all summer long. All right, I think that's everything. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. And I can't wait to hear from you. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And this week, Jelani Cobb, who is dean of the Columbia University School of Journalism, is telling us the true story of critical race theory and of Derek Bell, who is the man whose work inspired this set of ideas that have sadly been reduced to a political catchphrase. Uh, 
Before the break, Jelani was explaining that Derek Bell began litigating civil rights cases for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in 1957 on the heels of Brown v. Board of Education and at just one of the most active, promising moments in the legal movement. He was at the center of the action, and he started having these experiences that made him not so sure whether what he was doing was actually helping. Jelani talks about a school desegregation case that came to Bell from Mississippi. There is a Rosenwald school in the beginning, turn of the 20th century, a philanthropist by the name of Julius Rosenwald allotted money to build 5,000 schools for black students across the South. You know, tremendous act of philanthropic giving that transformed many communities. And there was a Rosenwald school in a place called Harmony, Mississippi. The school board, the all-white school board, was opting to close the Rosenwald School there, the Harmony School. And that prompted a group of activists to form an NAACP chapter and to start talking about what they could do to keep the school open. And a woman uh, who was the vice president of the chapter, a woman by the name of Winston Hudson, reached out to Derek Bell and said, you know, we would like to keep the school open. And Bell described himself as being astounded because he said, you know, you do know that we are trying to desegregate schools. <laughs> so we can't fight a lawsuit to reopen a segregated black school. But the fact of the matter is that the community was much less interested in desegregating the school than they were in keeping what they felt to be a quality black school open in their community. And so this is the point in which there's a divergence that Derek Bell comes back to time and again in his work, a divergence in the interests of the NAACP and the plaintiffs who they represent, because they ultimately do wind up uh, representing these families uh, in Harmony, Mississippi, and suing to have the schools there integrated, uh, which happens. And so it gives you a sense of how people who appear to be uh, operating on the same side are really sometimes operating at, at odds or have different interests. And how, what did he do with that? As he, so you said he, he notices this divergence between somebody like Winston Hudson, who's like, no, what all I want is quality education for black kids. I don't care about the integration piece of it, you know, and the yeah. NLACP wants the integration piece of it. That leads to this larger critique. What did, what did he take from the divergence that he saw there? Well, in, in order to understand how he evolves, we have to add in a little bit of history. You know, there's lots that happens, but we can just summarize it by saying many of these school systems are integrated, at least in theory, which in turn sparks a mass exodus of white students from the school systems uh, into what they called segregation academies, uh, and effectively ensured that black students would be going to overwhelmingly black schools even after uh, so-called integration had taken place. And in turn, many of the public schools, which were never great in the South, never really wonderfully funded, became even more poorly funded because there was less reason for white taxpayers to be invested in what happened in public schools. And so Derek Bell looks at this play out in the 1960s and 1970s, and he tells Winston Hudson, who he sees at a conference, he says, you know, I'm not sure I gave you the right legal advice. And she tells him, I'm not sure you did either, mm. <laughs> which is a kind of fascinating moment. Uh, because the fact of the matter is, a decade, two decades uh, after Brown versus Board of Education, you were still seeing black students going to overwhelmingly black schools. And, you know, we should also add an asterisk here or a footnote here to say that the problem was never that they were going to overwhelmingly black schools. The problem was that as long as black students were segregated in one particular set of schools, it would be easier to underfund those schools. It would be easier to shore up inequality. So the ideal of integration was that if you put black students and white students in the same schools, they would have to fund them because you would not want to deny a quality education to white students either. Uh, if it meant, you know, denying it to black students. And so this is kind of one of the ideals uh, that was at play, but it ultimately plays out very differently. And so by the 1970s, Bell 
he is really beginning what becomes a multi-decade effort at reassessing what happened in the course of the civil rights movement. And that reassessment is really the cornerstone of critical race theory. That distinction was initially lost on Bell, but it began to trouble his thoughts about the pioneering civil rights work he'd done. Jelani Cobb says that in the early 1970s, those misgivings became the foundational ideas of today's critical race theory. And they were, in fact, disturbing ideas. And he also felt that if you were to institute as massive a set of changes as the civil rights movement brought about, and still wind up with outcomes that were reminiscent of what happened before the civil rights movement, that it meant that racism would not be easily uprooted from American society. Uh, And it's around this point that he begins saying that we should consider racism to be a permanent feature of American life, which was enormously controversial when he first said it. People believed in, in one of the ethics of the civil rights movement had been that the society could change and that people could uproot racism. Uh, And here is a person who was a soldier on the front lines of the movement saying, you know, I don't think this is ever going to change. I think this is always going to be a permanent feature of American life. This was just not really said. These were things you didn't really hear from the crowd that Derrick Bell was associated with. And, And for a time, It created tensions, even in some of his personal relationships, uh, as people wondered if he had just become jaded. Yeah. I mean, I often, to be honest, I mean, that that is my my perspective, that it's a permanent part of American society. And I I never really understood, and I've said it for many years, and I didn't understand that I was sort of in a line of thought that started with Derrick Bell. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that experience. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have that experience, that we have ideas that are attributable to what Derrick Bell was trying to figure out. And, you know, we have kind of had an easier route to drawing some of these conclusions precisely because he wasn't so invested in his own glory. I mean, a lot of people would have just recounted their tales of great courage and achievement and never had the intellectual honesty to question whether or not this actually made the difference you were trying to make. And, you know, and Derek Bell was one of the people who was able to, was willing to do that. So at this point, we're in the mid-70s or so that he starts to recognize this. And it's a controversial idea at that time. Uh, there was another big Supreme Court case, you point out, around that time that shaped his thinking. That's in 1978. And it's the Supreme Court case that reaffirmed the purpose of affirmative action in college admissions, but did so in a way that troubled Bell. How so? So he's talking about the Bakke case, you know, which is famous. It's the famous reverse racism argument. And it is that a man by the name of Alan Bakke, uh, who had applied to medical school, University of California system twice uh, and had been rejected, but found that there were black students who had lower scores uh, who had been accepted, uh, sued and said that he had been a victim of reverse discrimination. And the Supreme Court decision on it narrowly preserved affirmative action uh, on the the grounds of diversity uh, and saying that, you know, it was permissible if you were diversifying the population, et cetera. And kind of that's been, you know, one of the main buzzwords ever since. But Derek Bell was incensed and deeply troubled by this. And it really distills a lot of what his uneasiness had been, that in essence, the court was responding to specific racially intended policy and legislation that had excluded black people from institutions of higher learning, but they can only respond to it with the tool of colorblindness. And so he does not think that what happened to Alan Bakke in the admissions process is the equivalent of what happened to black people who were turned away from universities, irrespective of what their scores were. Uh, And he said that as long as we are making these two things equivalent, as long as we're engaged in this false equivalency, we'll never actually be able to achieve racial progress. Uh, And so that's why I think Baki really is at the cornerstone of his evolving thought about uh, the shortcomings of liberalism and the shortcomings of the civil rights movement as a product of it. Because it's sort of this moment where it's no longer about black people have been wronged. (laughs) 
Um, and right. so that needs to be fixed. And it's more about this vague principle of race shouldn't matter. Right. Uh, because you can't really do anything to fix the conditions imposed upon black people because we're supposed to adhere to a colorblind standard right. of the Constitution. Uh, and so if that's the case, then you I mean, there are lots of contentions that you can make about just how colorblind the Constitution actually is. But if you are operating under that presumption, you're going to immediately run into a roadblock of actually correcting the situation that was created in the midst of all those years. It, it also seems like it connects to this this other big idea he lands on that you describe, and I want to hear you talk about, is, is you know the notion that the gains that did come from the civil rights movement leading up to this uh, this Supreme Court case, they were not the result of a mass moral awakening amongst right. white people, but rather just a product of the convergence of our interests. It, yes. What did he mean by that, and why does it matter? You know, Derek Bell talks about what what people would immediately say was a rather cynical estimation of what made the civil rights movement possible. So Bell argued that black progress had overwhelmingly been achieved in this society when it aligned with white interests. And you can kind of walk through, you know, the history of black America, you know, in this way that that black people were emancipated because it was in the interests of the country to preserve the union. Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party and many other Northerners came to understand that they could not win the war and preserve the union without also emancipating uh, the enslaved black people in the South. And ditto for the enfranchisement of black men you know, with the 15th Amendment, which was done as a counterbalance in the South against a solidly Democratic, uh, white, Confederate, ex-Confederate population. And so with the Civil Rights Movement, uh, one of the dynamics there is that this also occurs against the backdrop of decolonization and the emergence of you know, former colonial states uh, as free countries in Asia and in Africa and in Latin America. Uh, and in the Caribbean. And this is, occurs in the context of geopolitical competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. And so it made racism in the U.S. a kind of geopolitical liability, that at the same time that the U.S. was trying to reach out and create diplomatic ties and outflank uh, the Soviets in these newly emerging nations, which were overwhelmingly people of color, at the same time that was happening, there were black people agitating for freedom at home, and it looked bad. It was a international liability. And so Derek Bell argued that uh, international affairs you know, had as much to do with the timing of the civil rights movement as any domestic development. Now, of course, the other narrative was that this was simply a moment in which the nation's moral conscience uh, had matured. Uh, and that there were individual people, which there you know, most certainly were, there were individual people whose hearts were changed and who came to understand the evils of racism. Uh, all those things are true, but I think that Bell was talking more about the active ingredient, you know, the element that allowed all these other things to come into existence, and he thought that overwhelmingly the Cold War was responsible for it. But can we dig into that a little bit more? I mean, do you agree with Bell on this, too? You know, I mean, the idea, because I, I think people hear that, it's, it's okay, well, there was, this was not about the fact that, like, America had a moral maturation and that white people in particular had some kind of moral maturation. It just was cold real politic, you know, and then you immediately, your mind immediately goes to individual white people, of course, you know, um, who did have a moral maturation. I mean, I mean, so what's what's not really up for dispute anymore was that the Cold War was a factor in how the civil rights movement came about. Uh, I think that what people would argue would be, you know, relative degrees of influence. Uh, but there were things happening in the United States, like, you know, one instance, an Indian diplomat in D.C. Uh, wandered into Virginia and was refused service because mm -hmm. he was a dark-skinned person. Then, you know, as these nations decolonize and as they achieve independence, there are politicians, there are ambassadors, there are envoys who are coming to Washington, D.C., where there's segregation. 
And all of these things are really very difficult and an embarrassment on the world stage. We also know that in the Supreme Court, people were very much aware of the international implications of Brown versus Board of Education. You know, when the case came to the court, it was actually heard twice. Uh, but when the case uh, was heard in the 1954 decision was, was handed down, also for the presidency, uh, if we think about the successive administrations, uh, even going, you know, all the way back to Truman uh, in the 1940s, they are very much concerned about the way that the Soviets will use any racial discord or any uh, negative racial publicity from the United States to their propaganda advantage. Uh, and so these things are part of the ambient context uh, in which the civil rights movement takes place. Uh, and it certainly is a catalyst uh, for the development of the movement. Now, that said, there are important instances of people whose minds are changed. Uh, I mean, Stokely Carmichael, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, told a story about a man who attacked him, physically attacked him during a civil rights protest, who later tracked him down and begged his forgiveness and said that he was just beholden to ignorance and hate uh, and that he had come to see how wrong he had been. And I don't think that those things uh, should be dismissed, but there is a certain sepia tone <laughs> to that narrative uh, and a certain kind of romance to think that, you know, Things just happened without there being any broader uh, political considerations of you know how and why and and when and so on. And I mean, before we move on from this, I just why does it matter? Why does this distinction matter to Bell? Because I think that Bell is trying to, at its heart, trying to work through the durability of racism, and what he comes up with is self-interest. Like we're clear, we understand the vested interests in racism and how people benefit from it, uh, how white people benefit from a system in which they are at the top of the racial hierarchy. And I think Bell was saying, how do you reconcile that with these moments of advancement and progress? It was like, well, at, at some points, it was more advantageous to part with you know the racial traditions of the country than it was to maintain them. And also, I think, you know, in talking to students and young people, one of the things that I always point out is that most of the tremendous changes are the product of years or decades of work in the shadows. And so I think the implication of Bell's argument is that people have to work until there are these moments when people's interests align in these particular ways. I'm talking with New Yorker writer Jelani Cobb about the true story behind the much-discussed phrase, critical race theory. Up next, the generation of scholars who heard Derrick Bell's ideas and turned them into a massive intellectual movement, the one that's causing so much agita in right-wing media lately. I'm Kai Wright. Stay with us. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and New Yorker writer Jelani Cobb is telling us the real story behind the phrase critical race theory and the man whose work it grew out of, Derek Bell. He was one of the architects of the civil rights movement's legal strategy, but he eventually came to question the movement he helped to lead. By the 1970s, he'd become deeply skeptical of liberal ideas about how to achieve racial justice. But his critique didn't really find an audience until the next generation of legal scholars started thinking, huh, maybe he's got a point. Bell was really a kind of man in the wilderness at the beginning of his career. Certainly, people understood that law had been used in racist ways, but his approach to trying to understand how the law was complicit in these issues was not a wellspring of academic interest at that point. Uh, and so he published, you know, a casebook, Race, Racism, and American Law, 
he published it in 1970 or 1971. Uh, but by the 1980s, uh, this is the Reagan era. People mm-hmm. are really worried that the advancements of the civil rights movement are being rolled back. And there is an increasing interest in the points that Derrick Bell had been trying to make or the questions he had been trying to ponder. Uh, and so in the 19, early 1980s, when Bell had gone to Oregon, Harvard failed to assign his class to anyone. And a group of black students were very concerned about you know, whether or not you know, these courses would just vanish in his absence. And so they conspired to teach the course themselves and brought in uh, different speakers and you know, created a syllabus and so on. And that was the beginning of a cohort of people who coalesced, uh, and they became the kind of core group of critical race theory scholars. And, you know, many of them are younger people, many of them people of color. Kimberly Crenshaw, who is very highly recognized and uh, law professor in her own right, uh, was one of these students at Harvard pushing to have this class organized and taught uh, you know, by the students themselves. And so uh, this group begins a wide-ranging set of inquiries around discrimination, around anti-discrimination law, around uh, the way that the law functions to bolster particular social relationships and hierarchies, very much influenced by another group, the Critical Legal Studies group, who were looking at the law and saying that it wasn't neutral, it's not objective, it's not this kind of distant arbiter of constitutionality, uh, but it is an animate almost element of our society that reflects social interests. Uh, And so critical race theory comes out of both of those tributaries. Uh, And by the mid-late 1980s, you begin to see the cornerstone scholarship that uh, really defines the movement. And I often think about that group of scholars as sort of the beginning of the debate we're in today still. (laughs) Um, You know, and it feels like So much of the current uh, backlash from the right in particular is about trying to put that toothpaste back in the bottle, about trying to sort of rein those people back in. That's my big theory of the world um, over the last 30 years. I mean, does that ring true to you? Well, I mean, in a sense that, you know, the critical race theory was really um, crucial to giving people a language to understand what was happening in the world around them. If we kind of look at what happened in that time period, I think that it became a, a critical rubric for people to understand, oh, well, this is why we're seeing uh, the schools resegregate uh, in our society, you know, despite everything that happened in the 1950s and 60s. Oh, this is why we have anti-discrimination law on the books, but black women are also still the last hired and first fired uh, and in ways that don't seem to be contravened by the existence of anti-discrimination law. What are the premises that people are operating on and how faulty are those premises and how uh, is racial hierarchy and, and racism able to uh, manipulate and utilize those blind spots uh, to its own advantage? And I think... Uh, What was refreshing about it was that these were things that people could see and they could recognize, uh, but it wasn't that easy to articulate, you know, what all was happening and why it was happening. How do you think that group of people changed academia and changed universities? Well, for one, if we're just talking about legal studies, this creates a tremendous controversy and lots of dissension. And, you know, for me, around the time when I first began to take things like this seriously or pay close attention to it, critical race theory was just everywhere. It was one of the most prominent debates that people were having in legal academia. And over the course of subsequent years and decades, really, the ideas of critical race theory came to be incorporated by scholars of history, scholars of literature, scholars of sociology, and and recognizing in criminal justice and in all these different ways, seeing how this set of ideas could help explain uh, the way that the world operated. And so uh, when I was talking with one of my students 
if you forgive the cliche, uh, I gave the example of the scene in The Matrix where Neo <laughs> looks around and realizes that he can see the coding and he can kind of read, you know, what's happening. I think that's what critical race theory was trying to do for the law. Mm. The, one of the things that stood out in your article to me about Derek Bell is that you were, you know, you were in conversation with him at the time that Barack Obama um, was campaigning and winning. Barack Obama was one of his students, I believe, at, at Harvard. Yeah. And he was not, it wasn't a, a source of optimism for him, Barack Obama's campaign. It was not. Uh, and so I don't think Obama ever took Bell's class directly, but he did know Bell. As a matter of fact, at one of the rallies where Bell was explaining why he had to leave Harvard or take a leave from Harvard over their failure to hire or tenure any black women, uh, he was introduced at that rally by Barack Obama, who was then uh, the president of the Harvard Law Review. And so they knew each other. And in the context of this, having a conversation, uh, by this point in 2008, I actually knew Derek Bell, not very well, but you know, we occasionally corresponded via email. And in the course of a exchange about James Baldwin, the prospect of having a black president came up. And he was not at all optimistic. He said that he thought that if Obama was elected, you know, what we would see would be something that was like Brown versus the Board of Education or like the 64 Civil Rights Act uh, that promised much, delivered nothing, and only uh, assisted the country in moving closer to its premature demise. That's a pretty close quotation of what he actually mm-hmm. said. And I remember reading that and being stunned, uh, you know, because I, I'd always known that Derek Bell was you know, very skeptical, but I felt like his skepticism had soured into fatalism uh, when I read that exchange. And that remained my view until the worst stretches of the Trump era. Yeah. When I began, I revisited that email and thought, hmm, I don't have the same vantage point on this that mm-hmm. I did when he wrote it, you know, a decade ago. And then on January 6th, as I watched, you know, mostly white mob, mostly white, mostly male mob climbing uh, into the United States Capitol in a brazen attempt to overturn an actual election. At that point, Derek Bell's email seemed almost prophetic to me. Jelani Cobb writes for The New Yorker and is dean of the Columbia University School of Journalism. We'll have a link to his New Yorker article on Derek Bell in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for coming on, Jelani. Thank you. Before we wrap up this week, I want to check in on our ongoing project, the Notes from America Summer Playlist. And I'm joined by our producer, Regina DeHeer. Hey, Regina. Hi, Kai. So we are deeply underway in our listener-generated summer playlist. The theme this year is music of our diasporas. So listeners have been sending us songs that represent their own personal stories of identity as part of some kind of diaspora. And we're taking those submissions and we're making a Spotify playlist that listeners can stream right now. Yes, it's available to stream right now. Just go to wnyc.org slash playlist to listen. And in our last installment, I added my own song to the playlist, Stability by RSR. And it is a jam. These are definitely no skits playlists. But Kai, the real heartbeat of this project is the responses we're getting to our question. What is a song that represents your personal diaspora story? And that can be any diaspora, to be clear. Whatever it is, what's a song that represents your connection to that community? And we are including your voice recordings as part of the playlist itself. So listeners, when you go to wnyc.org slash playlist, you can hear not only the songs, but the stories behind the songs, which is really cool. Exactly. And I have a few of those submissions to give everyone an idea of what they'll hear. So first up, we heard from a listener named Junior, who is based in Houston. Shout out, Houston. My name is Junior. I was born in Trinidad and Tobago in 1974. 
A song that I can say is a song that I remember as a kid. It was by a Calypso and artist named Sparrow. And the song was called Jean and Dinah. And it's so weird from listening to Jean and Dinah and many other Calypsonians when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, growing up here in Houston, Texas. My older brother, he was four years older than me. I used to listen to Cool Herc. Ice-T, I bought the N.W.A. first album when it first came out, but I still go back to my original roots. Gene and Dinah, Calypso artist, Sparrow. Wow. And so Regina, Calypso is specifically from Trinidad, huh? Yes, it began there and spread throughout the West Indies. It's actually a close relative to this West African music called Kaiso, out of Nigeria. So there's a really cool diaspora story there, too. Yeah, yeah. The next voicemail is from Tarek in Seattle, Washington. He started off his voicemail by sharing that growing up, he really wanted to assimilate to be like the people he saw on TV and in movies. But a few years ago, a sudden death in his family sparked an interest in exploring his own Palestinian culture. And it wasn't really until... My grandmother died in 2019 that I was thrust back to this world of culture that I had ignored my whole life. And, oh, I have to like see these family members and all these people that I haven't seen in years. When I was in that room, not being able to understand the Arabic, I realized like what a mistake that I made. And so ever since then, I've been trying to like reincorporate this culture back into my life. The song I picked for this was The Snake for Lana Lubani. Lubani, I, it's so funny because ironically, I don't know how to say her last name, which is a testament to like how far from this culture that I am. But I picked it because it was one of the first massively popular U.S. songs with Arabic in it. And the way that it incorporated Arabic music so beautifully and naturally really spoke to me. Oh, wow. Tarek, thank you so much for sharing that story. And I'll also note that a lot of our voicemails are coming from people in an Arab diaspora community like Tarek, which is very great. I suspect that's because our first segment in this summer series was on music of the Arab diaspora. But I do want to emphasize that we want to hear from everybody. Whatever your diaspora story is, whatever diaspora you feel like is part of your story, it is very much welcome in this playlist. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also, I've been really blown away by the vulnerability and thought given to this assignment. Not going to lie, I've even gotten quite emotional a few times hearing the stories from our listeners. For example, here's a submission from Shaza, who is originally from Syria. The, the singer is Edith Piaf, and the song is uh, Je ne regrette rien. It means I don't regret anything. Because, like, you know, like I've been through a lot in my life. I have to make a very big decision. Like because of the war in my country, because of my divorce, because I'm a single mom, I my my girls had to live far away from me. And really, like sometimes I had like a very big things happening in my life, very challenging ups and down and stuff like sometimes I feel like, yes, I made good decisions. Sometimes I feel, oh, no, I should not do that. I, I could have done better. But then I realized that, no, me, I'm not going to regret anything that happened in my life, good or bad. I'm not regretting any decision I made because at the end of the day, I think that what happened with me make me the person I am now and make me strong, independent now. And I like it. And this is what I tell my two daughters too. By the way, it's worth pointing out that Edith Piaf is not herself Syrian, but her music represents something to Shaza. And I want to underline that's completely valid. Right, right. Your song submissions can be anything. And the point is that they mean something to you about your relationship to the diaspora. And to that point, the last voicemail I have for you is from Jenny. She shared that her Lebanese dad met her white mom in a nightclub parking lot in Tucson, Arizona. 
And she has this vivid memory of getting to know her Lebanese side during her first trip to the region. And it's attached to a certain song from a very famous movie. You may have heard of it, Titanic. (laughs) When I got to Lebanon and connected with my cousins for the first time, one of my cousins, Ruba, absolutely was obsessed with this movie. We're talking, I met her in a Titanic t-shirt. Like there was a hand-sewn pillow on my bed with the Titanic movie poster, like embroidered into it. Absolutely obsessed. So I remember sitting in my uncle's kitchen in my dad's hometown in Baalbek and finally getting permission to watch Titanic on this like little tiny VHS TV. And I remember absolutely loving My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion, obviously. And I was so excited to finally connect with my family. And this cousin who was pretty close to my age over this American piece of cinema. And to this day, whenever I visit, I always listen to the Titanic soundtrack. And it reminds me of that day in my uncle's kitchen, having this moment with my cousins for the first time, watching Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio struggle to get on that little rickety door in the ocean. Okay, Leo and Kate bringing together this Lebanese family. I love it. Right? Okay, so Regina, remind everybody, how do listeners get involved? Yes, listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what song represents your personal diaspora story. Go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the green record button to leave us a message. Start with your name and where you're recording from. Then tell us the name of the song you picked, the artist, and a short story that goes along with it. Feel free to include a little bit about your background as well. And you can also stream the playlist now. Remember, you just go to wnyc.org slash playlist uh, right after you listen to this. We're going to keep updating it throughout the summer with your submissions. And thank you, thank you, thank you for being willing to be part of this project. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcast and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Theme music and sound design by Jared Paul. Our team also includes Billy Estreen, Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Thanks for listening. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.